This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on these days in Washington? We're hurtling off a fiscal cliff, Danny. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> like Thelma and Louise. Oh, if only it were so interesting. <laughs> no, we're actually not going to hurtle off the fiscal cliff. That's coming later. As I our guess guests will, will tell us. Will tell us, but we are, we are in the midst of... Uh, the debt limit negotiations we were promised would never happen. Joe Biden said that he will not negotiate on the debt limit. No way, no how. And he dared Republicans, put your plan on the table if you've got a plan. And so he looked at Kevin McCarthy's tumultuous election with having to take 15 votes to get votes to become speaker and said, he'll never be able to herd those cats. They'll never pass a bill. And lo and behold, the Republicans passed a bill that raised the debt limit with some spending cuts in it. And uh, now it's sitting there. And now the ball's in Joe Biden and, and Chuck Schumer's court. And despite the fact that they say they wouldn't negotiate, I think there are talks going on. Yep. Um, and June is coming up where they, the Janet Yellen has said the deadline is coming up where we're going to run out of money. And what do you think, Danny? Are we going to uh, are we going to avert disaster or oh, what's going to happen? God, this is, you know, this is so fake. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's like when you're watching a TV series and the and the star they spent all that money on is in some cliffhanger situation and, you know, might die. It's like Aren't Batman, they, right? Will the, the Cape Crusader make it? Will Robin be thrown to the sharks? Yes. Tune and, in next time. Same bat time, same bat channel. And here we are. Exactly. <laughs> and and time, if you, by the channel. way, folks, if you were watching that and you wondered whether Batman was going to make it out. Uh, you're an idiot. <laughs> we love you, but uh, and that's the problem. All of the the melodramatic music, all of the the mood pieces, all of the increasingly hysterical editorials from from people other than the Wall Street Journal are nothing other than showmanship. Everybody knows how this is going to end, and. The way it's going to end is that the White House is going to negotiate with the Republicans because, and the Republicans are going to give in on the debt limit because they have to. But I thought I thought you all might be interested in some of the numbers, uh, which Clara very helpfully pulled together for us. So under Donald Trump, the debt ceiling was increased twice. That was the fastest rate of increase under any president. Under Obama, seven times. Twice in 2009. Congrats, Barack Obama. Under Bush, seven times. Under Clinton, four times an increase of 44% uh, overall under Clinton. Under George H.W. Bush, four times, also 48% overall increase. And under Ronald Reagan, our beloved Ronald Reagan, increased 17 times, nearly tripling overall. Now, those numbers, if you look at them on a, just a numerical basis, are pale in comparison to the debt limit and uh, an American debt this year, thirty-one uh, trillion and change. Just you know, a little change. Just but here, but here's the difference between most of those and, yeah. and today, which is that 
Generally speaking, when both parties control Congress and the White House, there is an uncontroversial raising of the debt limit, very quietly done. People don't want to make a point about how much money we owe. But when you have divided government, then traditionally one of the parties has used the debt limit as leverage to get the other party to do things that they wanted to do. And we saw this in 19, I think, 1996 when Bill Clinton was president and Newt Gingrich came, I guess, 94, Gingrich came in and tried to, the Republicans caused the debt limit uh, showdown. And Clinton sort of gave in a little bit, but not very much. They and didn't they get very much. Uh, and you know what happened? Bill Clinton won re-election by yeah, a duh. overwhelming majority. In 2011, Republicans again, with a much bigger majority than they have now, by the way, forced a debt limit showdown with uh, Barack Obama. Barack Obama caved in and gave them serious uh, spending cuts. And we had sequestration, which was a disaster for national security, but that's another topic. And guess what? Barack Obama won re-election by 2012. Are you seeing a pattern here? Wait, Mark, are you trying to tell me that this sort of brinksmanship is it's, not actually a successful re-elect strategy for Republicans? It's mildly unpopular. It's, we, what, no, what? <laughs> really? So I, I, want, I want everybody to understand how right-thinking people approach the question of adjusting the debt limit. Here is, I think, a, a really responsible senator standing okay. up and talking about it. Mr. President, I rise today to talk about America's debt problem. The fact that we are here today to debate raising America's debt limit is a sign of leadership failure. It is a sign that the U.S. government can't pay its own bills. It is a sign that we now depend on ongoing financial assistance from foreign countries to finance our government's reckless fiscal policies. He goes on a little bit longer. And again... Who who is this crazy right-winger? I know. I mean, I, I... it's Barack Obama, really? who voted against raising the debt limit in 2006. And you know what? What he said was exactly right. Now, of course, when he became president, he no longer agreed with those policies. But among he's exactly <laughs> among, among the many policies he didn't <laughs> agree with. But but he's exactly right. And this is all of this is getting lost, right? All of this this. BS political mood music that's going on. Will they? Won't they? Oh my God, we'll get downgraded. Oh my God, costs will rise by 28%. You know, all of this stuff is nothing other than rubbish, uh, in, in a word, uh, to talk about the negotiations. What we should be talking about is this number 31.457 trillion as of last Friday. But before we talk about that, that very important point, which we will, and we're actually, it's all that dominates our conversation with our guests. We thought we were going to be talking about the debt limit. And instead, we got into a very deep and dark uh, conversation about the fiscal future of our country, which left me shaken. Yeah. Um, so uh, tune in for that and uh, get a stiff drink unless you're driving. Uh, but uh, here's the thing. What I don't understand is until January, Democrats had unified control of government. They controlled the House. They controlled the Senate. They controlled the White House. Why didn't they raise the debt limit then? Yeah. Why, they, Why didn't they do they gun control then? They could have done it. Well, they could have done a but. Well, you can't do gun control with a budget reconciliation bill, but you can raise the debt limit with a budget reconciliation bill. And they could have done this before the elections. Why didn't they do it before the elections? Two reasons, I think. Number one, they didn't want to own it, right? If you raise the debt limit, you have to put a number on it. And then they didn't want to go to the midterm saying Democrats just voted by themselves to raise the debt limit up to X. And that's how much they want to raise your national debt and give the Republicans a campaign ad. And two, 
they weren't sure that they could get Joe Manchin and Cinema to go along. And if they didn't, then they would be, the Democrats were fighting amongst themselves and couldn't manage to raise the debt limit, which would have weakened them. So they, they, they decided to punt. They didn't do the responsible thing from their perspective. What they say is the responsible thing, which is to have a clean, they could have had a clean debt limit increase uh, with no negotiations, no spending cuts, no nothing, and they didn't do it. So when you hear Joe Biden warning about how Republicans are trying to push us over a fiscal cliff and the terrible things that are going to happen, he could have done this himself a few months ago. I am so bored by Joe Biden. I, I, know, <laughs> I know that's kind of a non sequitur. I'm just thinking about, you know, how many does he ever say anything that surprises us? Does he ever show a scintilla of, of, of leadership for this country? I mean, geez, Louise, would it drive us over a debt cliff? We have been hurtling down. <laughs> We've been falling off that cliff now for years. So, so let's it, talk about that. So, I mean, let, yeah. right. So let's talk about that number. You know, $31.457 trillion is not a small amount of money. Yes. It is By n- any standard. No, it is not a small amount of money. And guess what? This is what people need to understand. This fight isn't even putting a dent in that. That's if, exactly if, right. If, if, the, the reality is, look, both sides have taken Social Security and Medicare. What's driving our debt is entitlements. And both sides have taken entitlements off the table. The Democrats have said uh, that they're not touching entitlements. They've accused Republicans, attack them for wanting to touch Social Security and Medicare. Republicans said, no, 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 not us. We're not doing it. Donald Trump is attacking Ron DeSantis in campaign ads using the Democrats talking points saying that he wants to take away your Social Security and Medicare. So entitlements are off the table. Second thing that's off the table, defense, right? And defense should be off the table because for crying out loud, as we've paid any, if you've listened to our podcast, you know we're head hurtling towards a new Cold War with China, and China is spending on its military. And if we want to deter a war with China and not get into a cataclysmic third world war, we probably ought to have the military that's capable of deterring them. So we actually need to increase. We're about to go next year. I just saw a def- when I was doing my research on this Ukraine piece I've got coming out, which I'll talk about later. Um, the, the Defense Department projects that next year we will hit defense spending as 2.7% of GDP. That is the lowest it has been since World War II. We, you know, we mock well, the Mark, Europeans. I, I, we mock there's the, nothing going on in the world. Exactly. No. 2.7? Exactly. Cut it. Let's but, cut it more. So, and and, and, and Mark, so we can't do that. But, Mark, you don't understand. Oh, See, sorry. It, if we stop spending useless dollars on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Defense Department— then we'd have all the money we needed to oh, feed China, yeah, exactly. right? We'd have that dollar forty, dollar forty-two well, back that we could really use because that's the right thing to focus on. Don't well, get, don't get me wrong, people. Well, I, I'm that, forgetting rid of diversity, is, equity, that, inclusion, that in the defense department. That spending is BS. That spending is ridiculous, and we talked about that in the podcast we just did. But that's not the money that is dry. That, that's not that the money the problem. We can, have, we can do a whole other podcast China. on DEI in the Pentagon because that's a big problem. It uh, is a big and, problem. But, so but, we, but let's not dismiss that, but it's not the fiscal problem. But it's not the fiscal it's problem. Not the fiscal it's problem. So, a okay. problem, okay, but so it's we, not a fiscal problem. And, and by the way, provide for the common defense is like the is the one, it's, job, one of job of the federal government. It's like you had one job. Exactly. If you look at the Constitution, what's our job? Number one, provide for the common defense. So, you know, so we've taken defense off the table. We've taken entitlements off the table. So what are we fighting over? 
We're fighting over a bunch of discretionary spending. We're fighting about climate spending. We're fighting over a bunch of, you know, social welfare spending. And in and an all ideal the world, we would be fiscally sound, and those things would be worth fighting over. They are but, worth fighting but over, like, but it's But it's not, like but it's, having a meteor, as our guest says, yeah. a meteor hurtling towards the earth, and we're all arguing about, you know, whether there should be a traffic sign in a particular corner. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, not quite what, what is going to meet the the exigencies of the moment. Don Rumsfeld had a famous saying, which is Rumsfeld's first rule of holes. When you're in one, stop digging. So the the debt limit fight we're having right now isn't going to get us out of our hole, but at least we can stop digging. That's yeah. what we're fighting over. Good luck to us. Good luck to us not sucking. <laughs> <laughs> so we're joined, actually for the first time, a great guest, Brian Riedel. Brian Riedel is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He focuses on budget, tax, and economic policy. He was, uh, for six years, chief economist to Senator Rob Portman. and he Working was, with my wife, Pam, and, the, and Senator Portman's office. Just in case you thought we were getting away from the incestuous guest practices here. And a staff director of the Senate <laughs> Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and Economic growth. He was at Heritage Foundation uh, before that and worked for Marco Rubio before that and worked for Mitt Romney's presidential campaign before that. So he's been round the block a whole bunch of times. And this is a great interview. Here's our interview. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here, Mark. Thank you. So glad to have you. So we've got a, a deadline sort of moving deadline coming up in sometime in June where the United States could default on its debt. And after promising not to negotiate, Biden is now sort of negotiating. What's happening? Where are we? And uh, what's going to happen in June? Yeah, we're as little as two and a half weeks away from the X date, the date that we would hit the debt limit. It could be anywhere from June 1st to even as late as mid-August, depending on how corporate tax receipts come in. But with President Biden promising not to negotiate, he had a meeting with McCarthy and and other leaders last week to exactly begin the negotiations, even if he won't call it that. And what's been happening for the last week is staff have been engaged in back-channel negotiations, White House staff and congressional leadership staff, which is exactly what we need. But as we get closer to the X date, we're getting to the point where they're going to need to come to a decision uh, and, and get it passed pretty quickly. And in fact, the, cl- the closer we get to June 1st, the more their options narrow because you need any policies that could be written, understood, drafted, and passed quickly. All right. So we're negotiating, not negotiating. We're getting up to a deadline that's not exactly a deadline. But there's <laughs> one thing that's for sure, right? Which is that our current public debt is somewhere in the range of $31.5 trillion per the Treasury Department. To me, I don't know. Give or take a trillion here or there. To me, me, (laughs) this feels like an awful, awful, awful lot of money. And when I look at the list of countries who have high debt-to-GDP ratios, Sure, number one, Venezuela. Number two, Japan, which has been in the weird economic doldrums since the 1990s. But then we're talking about Sudan, Greece, Lebanon, Cap Verde, Italy, that well-known paragon of fiscal discipline, Libya, Portugal, (laughs) the poor man of Europe, Singapore, okay, I feel okay being with them, Bahrain, not really, and us. 
what a craptastic neighborhood to live in, if I may say so. We're meant to be, you know, the strongest, the wisest, the best country in the world. And we have a debt to GDP ratio that is in the same neighborhood as Libya and Sudan. What just the hell is going on? <laughs> what the hell is going on, Brian? <laughs> to coin a phrase. Before well, we even talk it, about the negotiations, how did we get here? Well, it, it's going to get worse. I mean, we got <laughs> here because we, we got here because politicians won't make difficult decisions. They pander and pander and pander, and they they. they put spending programs in the permanent baseline to grow forever every year without a vote. Right now, the debt is about 100% of the size of the GDP. We're going to be heading to 200% of GDP over the next couple decades, and that assumes peace, prosperity, and low interest rates. If interest rates rise, we could have a debt heading to 250 or 300% of GDP. And these are basically fantasy land numbers. The economy would crash long before we even get to these points. And you, you, know, you compare us to other countries, the advantage we have with other countries is we're the world's reserve currency and people, you know, at least for now, want to lend us money, which will last for a little while. The disadvantage we have relative to other countries is that our economy is so big that if we have a debt crisis, who is going to bail us out? You know, Greece can have a debt of 200% of GDP, and it's still, their economy is small enough that the rest of the world can bail out Greece. The rest of the world can bail out Portugal. If America hits 200 or 250% of GDP, there is no one coming to bail us out. So that's the danger. Well, China. If, if we tip over, China, right? there's no one to catch us. <laughs> but, but, Brian, uh, okay. I get what you're saying, and I understand the advantages of being the world's reserve currency. So people like lending us money because they hold dollars and they feel comfortable about the full faith and credit of the dollar. That's awesome. On the other hand, if this were you or this were me or this were Mark, this would be criminal fiscal irresponsibility. How do you get to a place like this? How do you have to borrow so much money that you simply can't live within your means? How did America become this loose, lazy country that can't live within its means? You know, it's, 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 it's interesting. There was a big anti-deficit push in the 80s and 90s, and we, we even balanced the budget in the late 90s. But once we hit a deficit in early 2000s, it, it, the, our politics broke on fiscal policy. Republicans wanted tax cuts. Democrats wanted new spending. Nobody seemed to worry much about deficits. And then, you know, we even had the short-lived Tea Party era that seemed like it was rebelling against deficits, but really was just kind of rebelling against temporary stimulus and bailouts. But if you want to know what's really driving the long-term red ink, so CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, projects $114 trillion in deficits over the next 30 years. That's the rosy scenario, peace, prosperity, low interest rates, $114 trillion in borrowing. That entire amount reflects the shortfall in Social Security and Medicare, actually more. The Social Security and Medicare systems are going to run a shortfall of $116 trillion dollars and the rest of the budget is going to run a $2 trillion surplus over the next 30 years. So if we really want to look at it on a program-by-program program level, 
We have 74 million retiring baby boomers retiring into a system that pays them dramatically more than they ever contributed to the system, and no one wants to reform it. So, but here's the thing. The debt limit negotiations are going to even touch Social Security. And Joe Biden is attacking Republicans falsely for, you know, not for having the courage. Republicans aren't even that courageous. Exactly. It's like (laughs) the state of the union. He he said the other day, he gave a speech where he said, like, he had a spontaneous conversion in the state of the union where Republicans finally agreed not to touch security, Social Security. And then Donald Trump is attacking Ron DeSantis using Biden's talking points. So talk a little bit about how the debt limit negotiations were like, we're talking about fiddling with like, you know, tiny amounts of money here compared to entitlement, the entitlement crisis. But two, there's not a single party that's willing to take this on. Absolutely. Uh, (laughs) President, I mean, Republicans made some vague hints about Social Security and Medicare reform at the beginning of the year. President Biden slapped the Republicans down at the State of the Union And now Republicans are racing to microphones to tell everybody how they are never going to touch Social Security and Medicare. Any such accusation is false. You even have Donald Trump on the campaign trail saying, I'm the Republican who will never touch Social Security and Medicare, unlike Ron DeSantis and others. Right, because he'll be dead, so so he's comfortable, right? Ten years from now, when everything goes to hell in a handbasket, Donald Trump will be dead. Joe Biden will be dead. What do they care? (laughs) It's, it's remarkable. I mean, both parties are tripping over each other to pledge that they're, that they're going to let America, America, the federal government, head towards insolvency. I mean, there's, because there's no degree of tax hikes, taxing the rich, defense cuts, anti-poverty cuts, cuts in Ukraine spending that would even amount to a rounding error relative to $114 trillion in deficits. But that's where we're at right now. But here's the problem. So, you know, people say, you know, the MAGA world says we're not the party of Paul Ryan anymore. This is, you know, well, it was the swamp that wanted to solve this problem. It was the Paul Ryans of the world who actually had the courage to take this on. Donald Trump has turned the Republican Party into a populist working class party. And one of the things about bringing the working class into the Republican tent, which overall is a good thing, but one of the downsides of it or one of the costs of it is they like their largesse. They like their entitlements. And so there's no there's no political will in the Republican Party to mm-hmm. take on entitlements anymore. So and the Democrats certainly don't want to cut spending or entitlements. So we in our in our two party system, which are supposed to have intellectual competition, we have no party for fiscal responsibility or tackling this crisis before it becomes a disaster. Well, right. I mean, the GOP is older, more populist working class party that people who are either currently collecting Social Security, about to collect Social Security, or don't feel like they earn enough money to, to, to feel like they can afford reform. The sad, the sad reality, though, for America is you can criticize Paul Ryan all you want, and people can spike the football and say, we defeated, we defeated Social Security and Medicare reform. We defeated Paul Ryanism. But the, the problem hasn't gone away. The meteor is still heading towards the earth. Even if you can, you can acknowledge <laughs> or deny it, the media is still on its way. And ultimately, we are going to have to deal with this, whether we like it or not. And the sooner we deal with it, the less painful it will be. Otherwise, what's going to happen at some point is there is really nobody out there who's going to lend us $114 trillion over 30 years. Okay, 
China and Japan only hold two trillion dollars in our debt, and they're and they're they're selling it. The Federal Reserve only holds five trillion, and they're trying to downshift. So that means we are counting on American banks and savers and mutual funds and investment companies to lend Washington a hundred trillion dollars over the next thirty years at low interest rates. That's not realistic, at least not at reasonable interest rates. So if we don't want to deal with this now, the bond market's going to fix it for us by cutting us off at some point. So help people understand, okay, uh, there's been a lot of media focus on the negotiations. You know, I, I think Mark and I probably agree that, especially given how little Congress does these days on anything, that finding something to negotiate with the White House over is not a bad thing. But as you say, that's really just trimming around the edges. You know, even the savings that people contemplate, you know, would be a, a, a drop in the bucket. So what is the right step forward? And in answering that question, I don't want you to be in La La Land. I would rather we sure. all lived in La La Land. Um, so, you know, this is not the ideal. What are the practical sure. next steps that good, responsible politicians, if they existed, would be taking? That's, that's a great question. Well, I, I do support a lot of what Republicans are doing now on the debt limit on the principle of first do no harm. I mean, discretionary spending caps are not going to fix the long-term budget, but they can at least help us stop digging and making it worse. So the first step, stop digging, cap discretionary spending, do the low-hanging fruit. But from there, we need to get both parties together to address Social Security and Medicare as soon as possible. And this means for Republicans, you're going to have to put taxes on the table, too. And that's for two reasons. First, I've run the numbers. It's really hard to close a $114 trillion 30-year deficit, or even half of it, on just Social Security and Medicare savings. You would have to completely devastate Social Security and Medicare on, on to, to, to in, and in ways that would be unrealistic. So policy-wise, you can't get there entirely on spending cuts. And politically, we're not going to have Republicans win some 80-seat majority where they're going to come off and do a massive Social Security and Medicare reform with no taxes on the table. That's not realistic. And if they did, the backlash would be so big that they'd get, they'd get kicked out of office and it would be repealed the next day. So both parties have to put everything on the table. Uh, again, most of the savings are going to have to come from Social Security and Medicare because that's, the, that's what's driving the red ink. But even, you know, we're going to have to put taxes on the table. And one other point on putting taxes on the table, the longer we wait the more tax heavy the final solution is going to be. Because if we wait 10 or 15 years from now, when the baby boomers are all 85 years old, you're not going to be doing much to, to cut social security and Medicare when they're 85 years old. And you can't start to phase in spending reforms in the middle of a debt crisis. You're going to be more drastic and tax heavy the longer you wait. So I would rather take a bad deal now than a horrible deal in 15 years. But Brian, let me just follow up for a second. Okay, so we're going to have to do this through spending cuts and revenue gains. Uh, my marginal tax rate is 51% right now. Uh, and that doesn't include 
the personal property taxes that I'm paying to the state of Virginia or the sales taxes that I'm paying to the District of Columbia or any of the other indirect and even direct taxes. Okay, now I'm a lucky person, you know, I've got a house and a car and, you know, all that, all that is great. I'm sorry, who are we raising taxes on? Is it going to be Warren Buffett? Because then I'm good. Is it going to be Elon Musk? Okay. But I mean, as best I can tell, every tax raise actually has ended up hitting normal people. Uh, and on spending cuts, on discretionary spending cuts, <laughs> I'm two years, two years off from Social Security. You know, so, so are you retroactively going to turn my Social Security payments for the last, uh, for the last 45 years into a tax that I've paid and not give me uh, my Social Security because I, I'm too well off. I saved too much to, to get it. Is that how it's going to work? Yeah, Brian. Yeah, well, Brian. <laughs> yeah, Brian. Yeah, 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 yes, that is how it's going to work. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I mean, the, the math of it is, is it's simple on math. You can't get, I mean, contra whatever the Democrats will tell you, taxing the rich doesn't come close. Um, I've run the numbers. You could seize every dollar of billionaire wealth. You could tax the rich at 100%. It wouldn't come close. Middle class taxes are where most of the revenue actually is. And middle class taxes will probably end up going up modestly. Not, not enormously, but modestly. We might see a 1%, 1% of GDP increase, 1.5% of GDP increase, mostly from the middle class. On Social Security and Medicare, the time to exempt all retirees or everybody over the age of 50 was 15 years ago. This is why the reason President Bush was pushing Social Security reform in 2005 is not because Social Security was going bankrupt in 2005, but because that was the last chance to say that everyone over 50 is going to be grandfathered out. Well, now you now it's too late to grandfather everybody out because right now, if you did that, you'd be grandfathering out the 74 million baby boomers who are driving the problem. It's too late. Now on social security and Medicare, we're not gonna cut anybody off. Um, we can phase in reforms, but, and, and even you can set it up so that people, most people will still get about what they paid in. The problem right now is you have a lot of people getting a lot more than they paid in. And on Medicare, the typical retiree gets triple back what they paid in. You, what we have to do is start raising the eligibility age, means testing benefits at the top, trimming the formulas, not cutting anybody off, but, but no, they're not going to get all they expected. Wow. So I mean, Mark is really bummed. <laughs> well, unlike I'm not a baby boomer like Danny, so that's I'm, true. I'm, I'm not. I'm not the, the problem. Yes. I'm not the problem. I want my money. <laughs> I'm I'm Gen X, uh, so coming up close behind her, but not really. But yeah, I remembered the whole. I, I was in the middle of the whole Bush fight in 2000 uh, in 2005, you know, and and that was the line. We'll just you know anybody who's retiring now, we're not going to touch it. But uh, you know, for the people coming up, we're going to try to change the system. And you're saying that that's not doable anymore, which makes it politically undoable, but it makes it politically untenable. Yeah, it, right now, the 74 million baby boomers all retire between 2008 and 2030. If, if we say we're going to grandfather out the baby boomers, then, I mean, you know, we're, we're just we're just going to, you know, cut benefits for Gen Xers. We're going to have a debt crisis before Gen Xers even get to retirement. 
My God. That's the thing. This is this conversation that we're having now lays bare the stupidity of current Washington debate. Right. I I respect I respect the Republicans for 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 standing up on the, the debt limit. But they're not really standing up. They're standing up a little bit. Yeah, they're they're kind of wed, trying to wedge open the door, but they don't really mean it, as Donald Trump told us. And I can't find a serious Republican out there who actually is calling for these reforms. You know, apparently Ron DeSantis is because he wants <laughs> to take away your Social Security and Medicare. Well, so. I guess maybe Ron DeSantis is right if yeah. he's actually saying that. I think he said it a while ago. Yeah, but I mean, so can we solve some of this by? Raising the retirement age, or are we are we going to like spark like pro? Are we going to be like the French all of a sudden and burning down, burning down Washington the way they're burning down Paris? I mean, that's part of the solution. I mean, right now the retirement age is gradually heading to sixty-seven. We could gradually raise it to sixty-nine, not immediately, but gradually over a span of ten to fifteen years. That could wipe out about a third of the Social Security shortfall. Social Security is actually easy to solve on a policy level. There's only three levers. The eligibility age, trim upper income benefits, or raise payroll taxes. It's just some combination of the three. I think eligibility age can get you about a third of the way there. I think you can get most of the rest of the way there by trimming upper income benefits. There might be a small tax change, but it'll be small on Social Security. That's the kind of thing, if politicians actually care, the two parties could solve Social Security in 15 minutes. Medicare is brutal. Medicare's whole is three times as big, two to three times as big as Social Security's deficit. And you have to fix the whole healthcare system uh, really to get at Medicare. and. I have reforms and I have ideas and others have reforms and ideas, but none of it is a silver bullet that totally fixes the problem. And that's one of the reasons we say that taxes will probably end up going up a little bit too, because social security can be solved. Healthcare, we don't have a full solution, at least not to keep it at the current share of GDP without rising at all. That's really depressing. <laughs> but I mean, but, but Brian, help me understand this. When I think about this, you know, when I think about the Medicare problem, you know, my brother's a doctor. The amount that he gets paid more, he's an orthopedic surgeon. He gets paid more for an office visit by Medicare and Medicaid than he does for a surgery. That's number one. And the numbers are so abysmal. I mean, when I say abysmally small, I'm talking actually, you know, what normal people would think is a business mm-hmm. small, right? That's number one. Number two, the answer that a lot of people have is, right, that's why everybody should be on the kind of system that governs Medicare and Medicare Medicaid. for all. It's right. been so great. Let's exactly. give it to everybody. So I, I told Mark, my husband and I were in London recently. We we're having coffee with a friend of ours who was the minister of health. He told us that the average time, wait time for an ambulance in the U.K., <laughs> Is 45 minutes. Oh, it's falling apart over there. Yeah. I, I mean, so if you care about inequality and you care about, you know, these sort of standards, then it's only going to get worse if these things don't get fixed. Why does nobody make that argument? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Medicare, the, the Medicare for all argument is interesting because Medicare has an $80 trillion shortfall over 30 years. And people's response is, that sounds great. Let's, let's put more people, <laughs> let's put more people on a system that's $80 trillion short. I mean, we can't even we can't even pay for the Medicare system we have now. So, I mean, the idea of let's let's put 200 million more people on that system, it only makes it worse. But in terms of broader health care, 
Yeah, I mean, there there is a lot of inefficiency in the healthcare system, and there's different approaches on how to how to fix inefficiencies. Democrats prom- promote more of a top-down regulatory method, and Republicans kind of pr- support more of a consumer-based choice and competition to bring down costs and produce efficiencies. But whatever you do, the Medicare system takes in 1.4% of GDP per year. That's how much it collects in payroll taxes. It spends 3.5%, and it's heading to 6.5% over the next 30 years. It's going to go from 35 to 65 while still collecting just 1.4%. So if you want to totally fix Medicare on the spending side, you have, to, you, have, you have a long ways to go. You have to get a lot of efficiencies to go from a projected six and a half anywhere close to a system that only collects 1.4. And that's why, you know, the best I can do is maybe get Medicare down in my reforms to about 4% of GDP. And that's pretty brutal. And even then you're still running a two and a half percent of GDP deficit. And so it's, we, we have a, we have a lot of work ahead of us with getting healthcare costs down, but yeah, the European system really can't be replicated in America. And even if it could, there's a lot of weights and lines and rationing that the Americans would never accept. And, and, that, that, and people don't realize that. And then on top of that, you've got the problem that, so as, as the baby boomers age, you have, uh, it used to be that we had multiple people paying in for every per, every retiree. That's going to flip upside mm-hmm. down. But that also has all sorts of problems because you've got like the long term care problem now. You're going right. to have nobody like, will die. I mean, so well, but I mean, the the, the reality is healthcare is getting better, so people are living longer, and there's mm-hmm. going to be nobody to care for them. <laughs> we don't have any kind of long care system here in the United States, and they're not going to have. They haven't had enough children <laughs> and grandchildren to take care of them, so that's going to be well, that's why Medicaid costs. That's why Medicaid costs are going to soar too, because Medicare doesn't cover all the long-term care, so they're all going to be dumped into a Medicaid system, and that those costs are going to explode too. Brian, exit question for me: um, What is going to force our our political leaders to to take this on? What kind of a shock to the system? What kind of a crisis is going to get them to? a place where they know they have to address this? Um, well, you either need the public to get motivated on it on their own, which I think is highly unlikely, or some sort of crisis to force their hand. Now, in 10 years, the Social Security Trust Fund is supposed to hit insolvency. Theoretically, that could motivate Congress to fix Social Security. I'm not sure it will, because in the meantime, Social Security's deficits are already being bailed out by general revenues. My worry is when you get to that point with Social Security, they're just gonna continue bailing it out with general revenues like they were before the trust fund hit zero. And that means if the public doesn't care and the Social Security trust fund doesn't motivate something, you may have to wait until you have a crisis. You may have to wait until the bond market gets nervous and says, we're not going to keep lending you these exorbitant rising amounts of money at, at modest interest rates. And once the, the bond market takes the punch bowl away and interest rates start rising, then you have no choice. And of course, at that point, the reforms are much more painful. I'm trying my really hard <laughs> to try to get us these issues before a crisis, but I, nothing gets people's attention except a crisis. 
Uh, my exit question is simple. Do you have any good news for us? <laughs> yeah, Brian. <laughs> <Hey>, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> You're a downer. Um, I don't really, I mean, on, on, on fiscal issues, the, the good news, I guess you could say We're is. We're going to get a deal. We're, we're going to get a deal on the debt limit. Um, it may not necessarily be a deal that fixes our budget, um, but no, I mean, it's 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 hard to give a lot of good news on this. Ultimately, I think this ends with us looking like Europe. I think we end up with about a 15% value-added tax and a payroll tax that's currently 15% rising up closer to 20 or 22%. That's how Europe funds their huge spending. I think we just end up in 20 or 30 years with middle-class taxes looking a lot like Europe. Hey, I lied. I said good news. <laughs> I lied, though. I, have a, I actually have a, a second exit question. I hear what you're saying. You are on the more conservative side of the aisle about these issues, although you know not not the populist side of the aisle. What are Biden's economists telling him about you know why he doesn't need to do or propose any of these things? Other than he's going to be dead when this all happens. Other than yeah, don't worry, sir, you'll be dead. Honestly. I know a lot of the economists in the Biden administration, and they are well aware of the problem. They have published reports on the problem. They all know about it. I think it is purely a matter of politics. I think it's a kicking the can down the road, and we'll we'll figure it out and let someone else solve it later. But this is this problem is not controversial among economists. Everybody sees the numbers. Everybody sees the unsustainability. It's just a matter of, especially in the White House, we always hear about how Biden's political team overrules their economic team, and that's probably what's happening. It's just not a fight they want to take on. And on that happy note, that note of integrity that characterizes everything that happens in Washington these days. Our, Thank you, Brian. Our, our podcast on the debt limit fight that got dark really fast. jeez, <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been fun. Take care. Take care. One of the things I will tell you is that when I'm writing my Washington Post column and I want to know what the hell is going on with the budget, the first person I call is Brian Riedel, and you can see why. He's, yeah. He understands this. He crunches the numbers. He can give you the data. And there's no and, bombast. And there's no bombast, and it's not ideological. It's just straight-up facts about where we're going, and they're facts that a lot of people don't want to hear, Danny. Well, but, I mean, it's not even that, that people don't want to hear them. It's that there is a conspiracy of silence around them in our political world. You know, when you have the President of the United States going before the Assembled Congress for the State of the Union and accusing Republicans of finally coming around to his perspective, which is that we shouldn't touch the big drivers of this ginormous deficit. And then we have on the Republican side, as you said, you know, Donald Trump attacking uh, Ron DeSantis for statements he made when he was being responsible about this low these many years ago. You got to ask yourself, you know, I mean, I guess we have the leaders we deserve because we don't want to have this conversation. But do we really want to end up with a 20, 25 percent value added tax like the Europeans? Do we really oh, want to end up? There are some people in our partner country who do. Well, I think okay, Bernie great. Sanders would love it. Well, you know, you know what? He should move to Italy. It's 22 percent. Knock yourself out, dude. Exactly. You know, but uh, or move, move to move to Russia, move to Venezuela. But 
I don't think the vast mass of Americans like paying more taxes. I don't think the vast mass of Americans like the prospect that they are going to have to cut further and further and further back for fewer and fewer and fewer services and work longer and longer and longer hours in order to pay Uncle Sam and then start working for themselves starting, you know, in August, September, October, because you got to work the first eight months of the year to pay the maw that is this federal government. I mean, I don't get where fiscal responsibility has gone out of fashion. I don't I don't understand it. Well, because austerity isn't popular. It's <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm going to cut your taxes. I'm going to give you free like stuff. That's really either, good. That, that makes for a good campaign ad. I'm going to take away stuff from you and make you work longer and pay more. I mean, that doesn't that isn't, but uh, that wh- isn't where popular. Are there, look, I, you know, Macron, who is not my favorite leader by any standard. Say that again. Macron. 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 C'est, oui, c'est moi. Je parle très bien Voilà, next time we'll do our pretentious <laughs> podcast in French. <laughs> <laughs> we have to say ho ho every time we say it. Make a point. <laughs> Lucky you can what still you, make... What still say make, you, Danny? <laughs> you can still make joke, rude jokes about the French and nobody considers it bigotry. It's the last bastion of... <laughs> it's the last bastion of, 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 of these sorts of jokes. But, I mean, but even in France, right, they've got people demonstrating in the streets, I get it, but even in France their president had the courage to raise the retirement age, which is the first step, right? Yep. It, and it is actually the easiest step. The first step to recovery yes. is, is acknowledging the problem and uh, doing something it. about it. Yes. He no, did it, and he got yeah. bullied, and he did it, and his popularity is in the crapper, and that's for that reason and for lots of other reasons, but he did it. Yep. He used his political capital to do something that was good for the long-term health of his country, why don't we have any of those people? Um, well, we don't. You're right. And and what we did, one of them's name was Paul Ryan. Right. And his his reward for that was having a campaign ad of showing him taking an old lady in a wheelchair and pushing her over a cliff. Uh, so that that's where where that our politics ad, is when it comes. It was it was a horrible but also very funny <laughs> ad. Unless you're Paul Ryan. <laughs> exactly. So Paul, if you're listening, sorry, Paul. <laughs> I'm sure you are. Uh, sorry, <laughs> but uh, but here's the thing. We have differing levels of irresponsibility, political lack of courage and irresponsibility. So you've got the Republicans who don't want to take on the long-term problem, but they want they they want to cut some spending, right? And then you have the Democrats who are like, "Yeah, hold my beer. <laughs> let's let's like let's create hold Medicare for light. all. Let's let's create a new enti- new entitlements. Let's also, by the way, let's spend trillions of dollars on climate change to try and stop the Earth from warming and drive our economy into the dirt." by getting rid of fossil fuels, which are the only thing that are fueling the growth of this economy. I mean, you know, if you want to think, oh, my gosh, you know, they, they, they're going to take away our gas stoves. They're going to take away our gas cars. They, they want to push us to electric cars by 2030, 2035. And our, our economy isn't ready for that. Our grid isn't ready for that. And they're just hurtling away at that. How are we going to dig ourselves out of this Social Security uh, debt crisis when we don't even have fossil fuels to drive our economy? Because the growth is going to go down. In order to even solve this without having all those the, the levels of taxation that Brian talked about, you have to have a growing economy. If our economy stops growing, or if we pour, you know, uh, pour, you know, what's, what's the different? What's, what's the opposite of pouring fuel on the fire? Pouring money down a rat hole. Yeah. Okay. Well, if we if we slow down economic growth with stupid economic policies and stupid climate policies, and then this problem is going to get exponentially worse. And you know what's going to destroy the United States? It's, we're not going to get to 2100 where the planet is boiling over because our country, our economy is going to implode before then. We should be more compl- uh, concerned about the climate of our economy <sighs> than the climate in the atmosphere. 
Well, you know, and, and, and remember, we've done, we've had a couple of great podcasts on climate change. There are answers. There are real and good answers to this that don't involve subsidizing Chinese companies, that don't involve forcing everybody into a Tesla, that don't involve the kind of insanity well, mitigation that the Biden as administration. Opposed to trying to mitigation sl- and adaptation. Yeah, mitigation right? so, and, adaptation, and you know, this, exactly. We, we don't need to digress too far. But look, I, I, will, I will end this podcast where I started in my conversation with you, Mark, before, before we went on air, which is increasingly I say to myself... Self? Self, I say. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Self, I say. <laughs> God. I'm really glad that I'm not going to be around for some of this because I'm just exhausted by it. Yeah. That's... Uh, Sad reflection yeah, sad. on the times we're in. Yeah, well, I I, I plan to live uh, as long as, <laughs> as, I, long can, as Danny. I can. As long as I can. Right. While you, you run know. away. While you run away, Danny. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's what I'm going to do. Don't you run away, though. If you have comments, if you have ideas, don't hesitate to share. Don't hesitate to email us or Clara, our trusty producer. And thank you for being with us. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.